So we've heard what is an evangelical, we've, we've heard a couple of different specific points addressed, but the reality is that um, the, the term evangelical has become so broad as to be mostly meaningless today. And we're trying to reclaim it. That's what uh, David said in the last talk. Let's let's take it back. Let's make it, 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 it let's make it mean something. Um, <clears throat> and there are historically there were a few things that you you needed to believe in order to call yourself an evangelical, or people you know people would have some basic knowledge. Oh, that means you believe. Well, now today because we've lost the word it, evangelical I would say it, it's if it means anything to anybody today it just means I'm not Roman Catholic I'm an evangelical right uh, and so <clears throat> rather than try to go into a whole bunch of describing really what you were supposed to believe to call yourself an evangelical in the past let me just start with something really simple with regard to the word right now, and then we'll jump into the topic of sexuality. An evangelical is somebody who actually believes the Bible. All right, let's just let's just leave it that that simple to start with, and then um, add one thing: they also believe in the necessity of conversion. And that's, that's, be, that's sort of tipping my hat to the fact that historically there was some understanding of what made an evangelical, and that was central to it, the necessity of rebirth, which we've just heard about, the re regeneration. <clears throat> um, but then with regard to sexuality, what that means, how, that, how those two things end up getting applied is, one, um, Somebody who is an evangelical with regard to sex is somebody who submits to being a man or woman as God defines them in the Bible. Right? If you believe the Bible and you believe that it is God's word and that he has anything to say about what it means to be a man and a woman, then to be an evangelical is to believe what the Bible says about manhood and womanhood. Does that make sense? Lloyd-Jones, in his little booklet, What is an Evangelical, which I highly recommend, was beginning to see the meaninglessness of the word and how loosey-goosey it had become, and says uh, at one point, now also an evangelical is somebody who doesn't just believe certain things, but is willing to act on those beliefs. Well, that's all I mean by letting the Bible define what it means for us to be a man or a woman. Not just claiming, yes, I believe the Bible, but that it actually is going to affect my life. And so you could say that that's um, when, when, when Lloyd-Jones says an evangelical is also required to let his life be changed by, by what he believes. That's, that's not the definition of an evangelical. That's the definition of somebody actually being what they claim to be. So you can claim to be an evangelical, or you can claim to be a Presbyterian, or you can claim to be white, or you can claim to be 
whatever you want, but if your life doesn't reflect it, you're not, right? So it's just basic integrity. Are, do, do you actually let what you believe affect your life? If so, then you can actually claim to be that. <laughs> if not, what's the point of saying you believe it if it doesn't change anything? So, <clears throat> with regard to manhood, womanhood, sexuality, and then later on in, in this talk, sex as an act, okay, what that means is that we are allowing the Bible to be the definer of good and bad, right and wrong, man and woman, male and female, all things related to sex. We're, we're drawing ourselves back first to the Bible and letting that be the definition, where the definition comes from. Then, again, with that second point, believe that an evangelical believes in the necessity of conversion, um, what I want to push us to is saying, and not only do we let the Bible define what it means to be a man and a woman or what proper sex looks like, but I'm willing to let my life be changed by that. You follow? Because, why? Well, because conversion means that the change has taken place. So if an evangelical believes that the Bible is true and that people must be converted, then we believe, with regard to sexuality, that the Bible defines what it means to be a man and woman and that we need to be changed from what we naturally are to what the Bible says we need to be. That's conversion with regard to sexuality. There's no part of our life that isn't converted, in other words. If, it, if we're an evangelical and we believe the Bible, and we believe that the Holy Spirit changes us and gives us a, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, that means that all parts of us are going to be touched, including our sexuality. That it, it's, it's as, as basic as it is, it's not more basic than our heart being taken out if it's stone and replaced with flesh. That means your core has changed, all right? <clears throat> So evangelicals are people who first and foremost are people of the book. The work of being an evangelical with regard to sex then comes down to letting the Bible define our sexuality rather than ourselves, our, the natural man within us, our fleshly lusts that wage war against the spirit, right? These are not what are going to define us if we are going to be evangelicals with regard to sex. The culture is not going to define us. We're people of the book, right? The culture isn't going to define us. Our opposition to the culture isn't going to define us, which is almost as important to say, right? Um, the deceitfulness of our heart isn't going to define us. Reasonableness isn't going to define us. Uh, comparative holiness, looking at ourselves compared to other people, isn't going to be the measure, the benchmark. Right? The Bible is going to be the benchmark. <clears throat> um, and certainly not broader evangelicalism's confused groupthink. That's not going to be how we're going to define sex or manhood and womanhood or right and wrong with regard to our bodies. Okay? So 
Having, having laid all of that out, well, I'm going to go through all of those categories of the ways that we're tempted to, to let our sexuality be defined. But we're going to hit those after we hit the basics. So I'm going to, I'm going to run through the basics of what the Bible says in about five minutes. And the reason is you could, you could take any one of the things that the Bible says and you could expand it to an entire sermon. But we don't have the time for that. If we're trying to cover all of evangelical sex in one hour, uh, that means that we've got to just throw the entire, you know, we've, we've got to get it all out there, and then we need to see what it means for us. And that's where I want to spend the majority of my time. <clears throat> so we will start by reading Genesis 2, 18 through 25. And I'm hoping that most of you have heard this many times and are familiar with it and have heard some of what I'm going to say at least with regard to what the Bible's simple teaching is. Um, but if not, and if I completely confuse you in the next five minutes, ask your questions. And if you're still confused at the end, I can talk to you after the, after the talk is over too. So Genesis 2, starting in 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Okay, so is God confused here? I'm going to keep going. I'll, get, I'll, I'll keep going, but just a second. Is God was going to make a helper for the man. And so what does it say he did? What? No, no. Didn't bring. First, what? Formed. <laughs> Was God confused about what man needed? No. So think about that. It says, so uh, he says, it's not good for him to be alone. And he created animals. And then he brings them. Yes, absolutely. He brings them. And, and the order of of creation, we do, we do know that man was created after the animals, but in this passage it talks about them in the reverse order, and, and it's not because God is confused or because the, the accounts are conflicting, it's because it's making a point. What does it say about the animals? It says, he formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the reason that this stuff is brought up, at least in part, that all of this, the, the creating, and then the bringing, and then the naming, and not just, and, and then he named the animals. No, then he named all of the, and all of the birds, and all of the beasts of the field, right? <laughs> Goes through. He has seen all of the animals, and was a helper fit for him found in all of them? No. Where am I? What verse am I on? Thank you. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. 
the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now, before I even get to Adam's response to that happening, what do we see? We see that the buildup is to this. A, hel a suitable helper had not been found. Now, here we have, ah, this is what we've been looking for, right? So a woman was created. Animal didn't cut it. Animal wasn't where it was at for, for the man. So a woman was necessary. This is, this is good for us to recognize for all sorts of reasons. <clears throat> Let me read then what Adam says. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so I only hit on, I only, you know, I only hit on one little thing in there for a second, which was that this is, this is meant to show us something about sexuality. With the animals being brought to Adam and, and the fact that a helpmate was not found throughout that whole process of him naming all of those animals, we learn something about what it is for him to be a man. And in contrast, we learn something about what it is for Eve to be a woman. There's differences here, right? So the way that God created sex prior to the fall is a pattern for us. It's a pattern for us. Sex starts with the fact that there is man and there is woman. There are real distinctions there. And those distinctions extend beyond our bodies to what we should do with them. Okay? And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back and somewhat defend some of these statements. But I'm, like I said, I'm just whirlwinding through this to start with. It extends beyond the differences in our bodies to the therefore what we should do with them and beyond what we should do with them to what we should want to do with them okay and the first thing if we are to be evangelicals that we must commit to with regard to sex is patriarchy to reject patriarchy is to reject the bible and the fatherhood of god now to defend that needs only this passage to defend it well would, would take an entire sermon and a lot more of the Bible, okay? But you really only need this passage to defend that. Here we have the pattern. The pattern is that all of the animals were brought to Adam and he named them. What does that demonstrate? Authority. authority. It demonstrates his authority over the animals. And then what does he do when the woman is created and brought to him? He names her, right? This is the pattern. Not that a man names his wife, but that he is in authority over her, okay? 
that's where, that's where we start. If we don't start with that, I can make a number of other, I can make a number of other pattern claims in this passage. But if we aren't willing to accept that it is a pattern and that it is binding on us and that rejecting the pattern prior to the fall um, is to reject the Bible, okay, then what's the point of trying to go into all the rest of the pattern? Either it's a pattern and it applies or it's not. Well, it's clear that it is. Why? Well, <clears throat> for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And Jesus says, did you not know that from the beginning it was not this way? And then what does he quote? He quotes this passage, right? Binding still, thousands of years later, and saying, no, this is the pattern. About what? Oh, about divorce. Saying that it was not supposed to be this way, but that a man and a woman were supposed to be bound in, uh, what's the word? Inextricably, yes. <laughs> Meaning that they can't be pulled apart. That's impossible. They become one flesh. How do we know that? Well, because this is the pattern. So if you're unwilling to accept this as a pattern, I'm, with regard to patriarchy, then you may not have it as a pattern. And so you cannot learn any of the other things that I'm about to say from this passage. You may try to defend them someplace else, but you're not going to be able to use Jesus with regard to the fact that a man and a woman are supposed to be together and are supposed to be married and are supposed to stay together because he appeals to this passage. So I don't know what you're going to do with regard to sex. You won't, you won't have anything from the Bible, though. You won't be an evangelical. You've got to start with, is this applicable? Is this a pattern for us today? And if it is, okay, good, then we can, we can start from that. We can say the first thing we see is that the relationship between the man and his wife is a relationship between differing creations of God that are brought together and made one and that are together man, mankind. One or the other alone doesn't cut it. And that the relationship between them is, and how it should look, is a part of the pattern. It's established here. This is the part where I'm spending the longest amount of time in trying to make the case. Then you move forward and you ask, okay, well, what else can we learn from this pattern? Aside from the fact that a man is to rule his household, patriarchy. Okay, that's, that's all that means. Father rule. So the father rules his home, and the home includes his wife and his children. Right? What else can we learn? Well, we learn that God made Adam and Eve as opposed to Adam and Steve. So homosexuality is excluded. Right? We see that God made Adam and Eve and before God made Adam and Eve, there was Adam and what? 
animals. And that that was not right. And so we see that man cannot have sexual relations with animals. Okay? We see that in this pattern. <clears throat> it's excluded. We see that God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve and Tina. So polygamy is excluded right here at the very beginning. And that's what Jesus appeals to. Right? This is, again, just to reiterate. You reject this being a pattern in any one of these areas, and you're left with a whole lot of nothing with regard to what the Bible says on sex. You just don't have, you, 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 can't, you can't have a theology that's of sex and that's based on the Bible when you reject this as a pattern. What else do we see? When God made Adam and Eve, he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Actually, I didn't read that, did I? <laughs> Where is it? Yeah. <clears throat> chapter, yeah, chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. <clears throat> so there we see some of the same things reiterated about the pattern. And we also see some new information. Well, some prior information because it came a little bit earlier in the, in the text, right? And that is that man... Kind man is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What does that teach us about sex? Well, it teaches us first that married people are to have sex. Now, that may be uh, surprising in to hear in that you think, well, duh, right? Or it may be today surprising to hear and thinking, well, I, I had no idea that was the case. And some of you may have been surprised for either reason. <laughs> okay, But it's clear that you cannot fulfill, that the man and the woman cannot fulfill their purpose that they've been created for without having sex. That's the only way that they can be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so we learn that married people are to make love. If you don't mind me changing the, to, the, to the euphemism for a moment, but we're going we're gonna to keep using the word sex lots in this talk. Um, and one of the purposes is that children will be born from that act. One of the purposes is that children will be born from that act. What else do we learn? Well, we also learn that as Adam and Eve came together and became one flesh, so when a man and a woman come together today and are married, 
they become one flesh. Well, that can't happen without, again, sex. And not just our sexuality as in one being a man and one being a woman, but them actually having sex with one another. So we see that within the pattern that God established, over and over again, what is necessary for them to fulfill the pattern is for them to be having sex with each other. This is not crass. This is how God created it. You see? And until we can get that, until we can get that firm in our minds, and not as a matter of, well, of course, because when men and women are together, they want to have sex. Not in that sense of, well, it's a natural and obvious desire, but no, in the sense that God created it and established it in such a way that it was necessary. You see, I'm trying to come back to, we're going to let the Bible define what our sex is. And so it's important for us to see that within the pattern that he's established, we cannot be fulfilling it without having sex. That men and women come together and are married and are having sex. And without all of that happening, and only that happening, not these additional possibilities that the world is suggesting today and that Satan is tempting us by, whether that's man with man, or man with beast, or, or polygamy, or all these other options that we've got, or man and woman coming together and not having sex, okay? Or man and woman never supposed to come together. We, have, we, we don't know how to respond to any of that until we come to the Bible and see that from the very beginning the pattern was established in such a way that sex was part of the relationship between a man and his wife, and that that's the way God created it to be. That's the two shall become one flesh. Then as a result of them becoming one flesh, they're fruitful, right? And so they're obeying God by doing this. The Bible is defining these things. Later on, <clears throat> Um, we see in the New Testament that uh, protection against sin is explicitly given as one of the reasons for people to get married and then once again for the married couple to have sex. It's not just that you're supposed to get married and that will protect you. It's that you're supposed to get married and have sex. That is the thing that protects you. Now we can take it again, like I said, as a given. Well, of course they're getting married, but I don't think that we can take it as a given today. There is so much confusion in our minds about what, what it means to be a man, what it means to be one, what it means to be married, what a marriage is that it's important for us to say the, the way that marriage is a protection in Paul's mind, and Paul, Paul takes it as a given in this passage, but then later on says, stop depriving one another 
Why? So that temptation doesn't enter in. So he actually makes both parts explicit. You're to marry rather than burn. So it's the marriage is protection. And then he, then he says, and by the way, the marriage must have sex within it. Because otherwise, the protection isn't provided. Are you following me? Okay. So having laid out this, this pattern that God created for what it means to be a man and a woman and to have our sexuality defined by his word starting just in the first two chapters of Genesis, and, and not, I, don't, I don't say that in any sort of negative sense, just, all right? I say that to make it clear how foundational it is. If all we have is the first two chapters of Genesis, we have enough to understand what it means to be a man and a woman in a godly way. And then to change our lives to match the pattern as he created it. Right? Having said all of that, our temptation is to let a lot of other things besides God's word define our sexuality. I listed all of the ones I'm going to talk about <clears throat> already earlier. The first one is letting our own fleshly lusts, and I'm going to add to that our deceitful heart, define what it's going to be for us to be a man or a woman. Or what our married relationship, if we're married, what that relationship is going to be like. If we allow our fleshly lusts to define what we're going to be as men, or what we're going to be as women, or what we're going to be as a husband within a marriage or a wife, then we have stepped aside from allowing the Bible to define our sexuality and then being molded to what God has made us to be. And instead, we are rejecting God and his word. We are no longer evangelicals. Because as soon as we, we walk away from the Bible, what are we? Well, whatever we are, we're not evangelical, right? And again, David said, I think it was, that really, you do that and you're not a Christian. You, you leave behind evangelicalism and there's, there's almost... There's almost no point in, in talking about Christianity outside of evangelicalism. What kind of Christian is a Christian without a Bible? What kind of Christian is a person who thinks that they sit in judgment over the Bible and that they're the ones who define what they're going to be like rather than the creator who made them? Well, it's, it's ridiculous, right? So... When I say you're no longer an evangelical, you can't just say, okay, well, fine, I'll be, uh, you know, I'll be a Protestant, or, you know, I'll be a, um, I'll be a re Reformed Catholic, or some sort of, you know, give yourself some other label that lends you respectability. What I mean is we've walked away from the Bible, we've walked away from God if we reject these things. This especially is true if we're allowing our lusts to be what define us, okay? So evangelical sex is lustless 
sex. Now this is so difficult for us to wrap our brains around. And this is why I don't take anything for granted. And I say, no, we have to say that men and women who are married should be having sex with one another. Okay? Because you, you know that as soon as I say lustless sex, there are men and women who are going to be confused, so confused about sex to start with that they think therefore sex is impossible because how could you have lustless sex? And so if they've heard, well, you can't lust, then they're going to fall into the position that some, especially early church people fell into, which was thinking that sex was some sort of necessary evil, but evil in and of itself. Something bad that, that we would like fall into and then repent of, and that somehow it protected us, but it was bad. No, this is, there's, that's, there's, there is no theology behind that. That's just a confusion of what lust is, okay? Evangelical sex is lustless sex. Now, I'm going to read from Galatians 5, just a couple of verses here. 15, 16 and 17 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, or the lusts of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. What this means is that there are good and bad desires. The same word is used for both lust and desire, and the context is what tells us whether it's good or bad, all through the New Testament, okay? Context is what tells us whether it's good or bad. When Paul says that he greatly desired to, to uh, come and visit them, that's the same word as we see here when it says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Well, the desire of the flesh is clearly bad. The desire that Paul had to come and visit them was clearly good, right? And in, this very, in these very verses, we see that there must also be desires of the Spirit. Because the desires of the flesh are what are contrary to those desires of the Spirit. The Spirit is willing. What? Well, to do the things that the Spirit desires. So the spiritual desire and the fleshly desire are at odds with one another. In other words, there is a spiritual desire that must happen within the marriage bed, and it must not be the fleshly desire that we give ourselves to. It cannot be that, that we are allowing our fleshly lusts to be what define our marriage bed. Okay, now I know this is confusing because we think we think Gnosticly today, all right? So what was Gnosticism? Well, the, the Bible sets the fleshly, as in the corrupted, against the spiritual, right? Gnosticism does something that sounds very similar. It sets the physical against the spiritual. But notice, the Bible sets the desires of the flesh against the desires of the spirit. Gnosticism sets physical against spiritual. The desires of our flesh are not somehow in our corporal body, right? It's not like 
in your in your hand is the desire. We don't, you know, what's that where you where you've got things mapped out on your hands and your feet to different parts of your body? Uh, there's massage where you know you touch that part of their foot and and that messes with their liver and it's this Eastern mystic sort of idea of the body, right? That there's these that there's these connections. Well, there are connections to your body, but it's not like that with our desires. Like in your in your left big toe, if you cut that off, you're going to get rid of the desire, the fleshly desire for um, for food that you shouldn't eat, right? And if you can just get rid of, you know, if you could just take a knife and start cutting out the right parts, that would be Gnosticism. Physical against spiritual. The Bible sets fleshly against spiritual. And when it says fleshly, it's talking about, yes, physical, but also spiritual realities within us, within our hearts, our desires that are wicked. Okay, so <clears throat> Gnosticism says that the physical is opposed to the spiritual, and this is very handy for promoting all kinds of sin. And in the marriage bed, you can see both uh, both directions that you can that you can fly into sin if you embrace Gnosticism. One one. One way is that um, is to say that all physical desire is bad. This would be a Gnostic way of looking at the world. All physical desires are bad. So um, this is where asceticism comes from largely. Well, you know, yeah, food, we've got to eat it to live. But really, it's better for us to live in a cave and eat as little as possible. And because any sort of desire and pleasure that you would get from food is just bad because it's physical. No. By no means does it being physical make it bad. That's Gnosticism. All right? But in the marriage bed, if you believe that all desire is bad, this is what allows a wife to say, I don't know what's wrong with him. He's so filled with lust. He wants to have sex all the time. Well, maybe he is filled with lust. Maybe it is evil desire that's driving him. But that has nothing to do with the question of having sex all the time. What we saw is that the pattern is for the man and the wife to come together and to make love. And that this is something that's good and set up in the pattern by God. So we can't allow our understanding to become Gnostic such that all desire is in and of itself wicked desire. All physical desire is not wicked. On the other hand, Gnosticism is also what allows the man to say, well, you know, what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. What matters is what's in our heart. What matters is our spirit. And so What's really necessary is that our hearts be in the right place. What we do with our bodies doesn't matter. And therefore, I don't know why she won't watch porn with me. It's just physical. It doesn't matter. What we do with our bodies just doesn't matter. It's just physical. That's the same error at its core. It's setting the physical against the spiritual as opposed to the fleshly lusts against the spiritual desires. 
Do you see? So allowing our, allowing our manhood, our womanhood, our marriage bed to be blown about by the desires of the flesh is absolutely opposed to seeking the desires of the spirit. But we cannot fall into the error of saying that means that anything goes on the one hand, anything physical, it just doesn't matter, right? Nor can we fall into the same error of saying, well, we should just stop having sex because if we can truly become holy, our desires will never be for sex. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about here when I say we can't be, we can't be driven by our fleshly lusts. <clears throat> the fact of the matter is that the Gnostic, whether one side or the other, whether saying I don't ever want to have sex or I want to engage in all sorts of perversion, both of those people care very much about what happens with their body, don't they? The woman who just doesn't want to have sex with her husband or the husband who just doesn't want to have sex with his wife, that's a very physical thing. <laughs> that's a physical desire. I desire to not have to touch you. God said you must, but you don't want to, and you're going to somehow spiritualize it. No, it's impossible. You can't make that godly. The same is true with the man Well, that, that wants all sorts of perversions in the marriage bed. Do you follow how that... Those are the same thing. I, I just want, to, I want that to be driven home. Those are the same thing. Um, they both care very much. He's just, he's, he cares so much about what happens with his body. He, he's so desperate that he must have this and this and this happen with his body that he is willing to completely reject what God has said completely reject the desires of the spirit, throw himself at the desires of the flesh, and justify it by saying, well, it's just my body. It doesn't matter. Oh, could have fooled me. It looks like you cared a lot. <laughs> our bodies and our spirits cannot be separated. Okay? That's ultimately what it comes down to. The 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 physical and the spiritual are melded into one. You have a body and a spirit. Neither one of them ever leaves you until death. Right? You are always both physical and spiritual. Therefore, you must <clears throat> seek to distinguish between physical and fleshly and to understand what is what. Now that is a hard distinction to understand because we know that within us is all sorts of evil desire, right? What remains of the old man? Have, if, have you become a Christian? Yes. Do you have a new heart? Yes. 
Does that mean that all your desires are now spirit desires? No. So now we have to come up with a way of judging. Are the desires that I have spiritual desires or are they fleshly desires? And simply asking the question, well, are they physical? Doesn't answer the question. We wish, wish, wish that that answered the question. Then we could all just become hermits and go out and live without eating and without sex and without water and without everything else until we died and then we somehow would have been holy by doing that. But of course, it's not true. It's not just your body that has been corrupted. Your spirit is part of you. You are corrupted by the fall. And so your desires can be both physical and holy, and they can be spiritual and unholy. Not spiritual in the sense that Galatians uses it, but spiritual as opposed to fleshly. I, I mean, as opposed to physical. Ah, now I've really confused you, right? <laughs> okay, I'm going to try again. What did I say? Physical versus spiritual and over here, fleshly versus spiritual, right? When we're talking about physical versus spiritual, I'm saying that your desires could come on either side, regardless, they're your desires, and they, they can be fleshly over here. They can be spiritual desires or physical desires. They can come out of your your biology, your testosterone, your, the, you know, the physical nature of you, or they can come out of, you know, your, your heart. Both of those kinds of desires, we've got, to, we've got to be able to draw a line between them and say, was that a good desire or a bad desire? Was it a fleshly desire or a spiritual desire? And the only way we can do that is to submit them to the Bible and what the Bible says about what it means to be a man and a woman. Assuming your des the desires we're talking about are related to sex in any way, shape, or form. Okay? Which, of course, so many of them today are and always have been. So an awful lot of our life is determined by knowing whether what we want to do is right or wrong. And if we can't tell whether it's right or wrong, we're in a world of hurt, aren't we? Because then we're just left to whatever desire happens to bubble up. We have no way to judge it. We don't know whether we should do it or not. And we're left just going, well, uh, either I should never do anything or I should just give myself to whatever to, happens to come up that I want to do. And neither of those is right. So this is why that passage in Galatians is so central. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So this is going to be the solution that I propose to you. Okay? The solution is walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, I'm not saying there's no way to know. I'm gonna, we're going to go into some of the desire a little bit. 
But I can't possibly answer all the questions that, you know, well, is this, is this a good desire? Well, is that a good desire? Well, is this a good desire? Well, is that a good desire? Well, was last night when I wanted to have sex with my wife good, or was it bad? You follow that, you end up having to make that judgment, and the only way you can make that judgment is to ultimately, you've got to submit yourself to seeking to live according to the Spirit. You could submit that question every time to some expert, whether that's a pastor or an elder or your roommate or your, you know, your, your alter ego that you like to spend a lot of time talking with. Well, I don't know. Well, what do you think? Well, I don't know what I think. You know, it's just like, no, this is insane. We can't spend all of our life asking the question. We've got to simply know. The way we know is if we are in the Spirit. If we're, if we're walking according to the Spirit, then we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And that's that. Isn't that beautiful? Amen. Well, before I run out of time, let's go through the other seven reasons that we are tempted to turn away from... <clears throat> the culture provides... Endless. The reason I spent so long on lust is because all the rest of these are going to ultimately fall back into that, right? Fleshly desire. They're, you're, you're, you're going to end up in fleshly desire one way or another through these other influences, okay? So the culture is going to give you porn, billboards of women who are appealing to you to come and take your pleasure with them. They're going to be on TV. There's going to be men that are trying to seduce you at work. There's going to be... So, so all, all over the place, the world is going to propose through all of that stuff, which is clearly, I'm, I'm laying it out as temptation, right? Temptation to give yourself to the desires of the flesh. It's proposing an answer to the question of what sex means. Through those, through what it's, what it's setting out there. Not to mention the op-ed articles that are actually proposing specifically, here's what sex means, here's why there are men and women, it came about through evolution, and et cetera, et cetera. You've, we've, you've got specific answers to those kinds of questions that are coming from the culture, but you also have the answer that the culture has for what it means to be man and what it means to be woman coming every time you see anything in the culture that's related to sex. The answer is implicit within that. It, it's what bubbles up to give you pornography and to give you... Because pornography is teaching you to want the wrong things. The desires of the flesh. It's putting up a wall uh, in your heart <clears throat> against unity. Which is one of the primary things that we see in the model between the, that, that God created at the beginning, right? That they're to become one flesh. Well... That, that's unity. That's what that's talking about. They're united. And so, when, so, so pornography puts up a wall between you and your wife, and it, it's a wall against unity. Why? Well, what that means is that the culture is telling you that your sex is not created to, to, to be a part of the unity between a man and his wife. And that's also why the culture 
gives you uh, the idea of just sex, no strings attached, no romantic involvement, no spiritual reality to it. It's just a physical thing. All of that flows out of their understanding of what sex is in the first place. And that understanding is a rejection of man as God made him, male and female. All right? On the flip side, we could let our, uh, we could let our understanding of manhood and womanhood and of the marriage bed be defined by a reaction against the culture. Well, this is no better than being defined by the culture, right? Because if we're going to reject what the culture proposes as good things, we will reject all sex. Ultimately, you cannot simply say, well, we see this in the culture, therefore it's bad. We see men and women kissing, okay? You know, just now this, we can't take this argument too far and say, um, we, we can't imbue uh, simply not reacting with too much weight. There is a, there, it is right for us to have a visceral sort of distrust of what the, cult, the message that the culture is giving us, but we cannot, we cannot let that be the definition of what right and wrong is. They don't have the foggiest clue what right and wrong is, so when they propose, here's what's right, inevitably, they're gonna have a lot of things in there that are right, because they don't know. They don't have the word of God. So we can't allow simply the, the rejection of the culture to be what allows, you know, defines manhood and womanhood, all right? Otherwise, you're going to end up with, uh, in, in the marriage bed, like I said, no sex and no pleasure. You're also going to end up with barbaric men who think that they're, they're reacting against the culture that's made men into wusses, and so they're going to think that what... It, what the right thing to do as a man must be to be beating women or some uh, other ob as absurd solution, okay? That's reactionary against the culture and letting the culture define us simply by inverse. We cannot allow that to be what we become. The Bible must be the definition, all right? <clears throat> uh, the, the, the culture is a mix of good and bad and Satan twisting the good. We can't allow empty philosophies of men to define us. Remember, we're to be on, be on guard against earthly philosophy. What does this look like with regard to sex? Well, reasonableness is the, is the simplest one. Well, that's just not reasonable. Don't you understand? Well, that's in a... You see how that's connected to culture because what reasonable today means is what a substantially, you know, large enough majority of the people who write in the New York Times believe. Then you've, got, you've found reasonable at that point. And once you step outside that, that's not reasonable. And we're like, this is what philosophy has come to today? Well, yes, I took philosophy. I was going to major in it for a little while. And that's all that philosophy is left with today. <laughs> that's worldly philosophy for you. Another philosophy, empty philosophy today, that you can allow to define sexuality is scientism. 
okay? The, the worship of science, if you will. Uh, trusting whatever science says, even when it clearly contradicts the Bible, and even though it changes all the time. How absurd! You know, just as absurd as, as, as taking reasonableness as your definition of what's good and bad and in, in, in right and wrong for, for men and women. Can I move on? Okay, good. <clears throat> Comparative holiness is another temptation that we have. Rather than what the Bible says, well, at least I'm not doing XYZ. At least you're not doing XYZ. What does that have to do with anything? It makes you better than so-and-so? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe they're not doing ABC that you are doing. But, but that's neither here nor there in the question of what you're supposed to be as a man and a woman, right? And the other thing is, if that's your only, if that's your only way of judging what you're supposed to, you know, like, oh, I can see that's, that's wrong, at least I'm not doing that, well, you will be soon. Because they're going to move from X, Y, Z to, to A prime, B prime, and C prime, right? And at that point, you're left free to say, well, I'm, I'm doing X, Y, Z now, but at least I'm not doing A, B, and C prime. There's no, there's no standard there. Comparative holiness is not holiness. It's not biblical. Um, finally, our confused evangelical in name only subculture cannot be what we're using to define manhood and womanhood, sexuality, and what we're supposed to be doing. Okay? Because this, this evangelical subculture is the, most, is, is the most dangerous because it is the most... Uh, it is the closest to putting forward an actual biblical argument, but having twisted it. And what Lloyd Jones says, and another point that he makes about what in, in his book, what, in a, what is an evangelical, is that of course the dangerous people are not the people who are liberal and who say, "Oh yeah, oh yeah, you can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter." Oh yeah, homosexuality is great. We should let them get married and they should be a part of the church and they should be pastors and blah, blah, blah. You know, to, to a group that wants to be Christian and, and, to, and to follow the Lord, that is not nearly as tempting as the person who comes into the church and says, oh yes, I'm an evangelical. Oh yes, I believe the Bible. But don't you see that the cultural context in which Paul was writing gave him the, the freedom to go only so far in the reformation that needed to take place in the relationship between men and women. That sounds really good, doesn't it? That's where the danger is because that is the evangelical subculture. You cannot allow what the, what the evangelical world has taken in and become this amorphous blob of, like I said, in name only, evangelical, all right, <clears throat> that still claims to be biblical, that still claims to have Jesus as Lord, that cannot be where you let 
the definition come from? Because it is not biblical. And that's what we've, we've just got to understand. It is not biblical. And to, to make that case, I'm going to return to my first point and say the reason you know it's not biblical is because they refuse to accept patriarchalism. They refuse to, they, 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 they think that it's a dirty word. Patriarchy is the most awful thing that ever happened in the church. This is what the evangelical subculture says today. And that is a rejection of the first part of what God declared in the pattern. And it will ultimately be a rejection of the entirety of the pattern, which is why today, as the Supreme Court says, homosexuality is fine and homosexual marriage must be and that, that the evangelical church is following in lockstep behind them in agreement just five, ten years behind in all of the decisions that the, that the court has made and that the culture has been pushing evangelicalism has been following along we don't have anything left if we allow evangelicalism to be our, de our definition of manhood and womanhood. We don't have any theology because we don't, we've, we've left the Bible far behind. Okay. I made it through. <clears throat> um, I want to say, oh, I already went over. I didn't make it through. I want to say one last thing. With regard to an evangelical and sex, an evangelical is somebody who will tell people these things. Okay? You're, you're telling them by the way you live your life, and it's just the same as evangelism. If you wanted to talk about evangelism, an evangelical believes in the necessity of other people hearing. And, you, and so an evangelical with regard, to, with regard to sex knows that this is a sin that people are facing and dealing with and tempted by, and so you're willing to talk about this. All right, we've got to be willing to, to say these things. I was at a church and somebody came out and greeted me and said, oh, so your dad is a pastor. Yeah, and your, your, your wife is expecting? That's right. Uh, well, is, and you're a pastor. Yeah, that's right. So is, is, your, uh, is your new child that's about to be born going to be a pastor? I said, no, because we're expecting a girl. They said, well, so? That doesn't mean anything. And I said, yeah, you're... You're right. Let me rephrase that. If she's going to be a faithful Christian, she won't be a pastor. <laughs> they looked at me. Well, what do you mean by that? This was, this was in a reform. This was in a PCA church. They've been in the church for three years. They don't have the foggy clue. No one's ever told them that women aren't to be pastors. I said, well, when, and look, this, 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 this is, they weren't offended. Well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, when God said, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, that precludes the ability of a woman to be a pastor or an elder. It's that simple. Oh. Now, they may just as easily have gotten angry, <laughs> but they didn't. And that's why I want you to know, this is something that's incredibly helpful for people to hear. So tell them. All right? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. 
Thank you for giving us our bodies. Thank you for making us men and women. Thank you for giving us marriage and sex and children. And we pray that you would help your church to be faithful in this area and to call to the world with your truth, calling them to repentance, knowing that in your word is eternal life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.